after he's left Capernaum to go around to these other towns. When Jesus again uh, entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home, most likely to Peter and Andrew's home. That's where he had been before. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, or get him to Jesus, excuse me, because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. So here's the scene. Um, Jesus is back in Capernaum. He's teaching in this home of Simon and Andrew. Maybe 40 people can fit in the home. So everybody's in there. I'm assuming they're quiet because they're listening to him. There's not really any indication that Jesus is doing anything. He's not performing any miracles or healing anyone. He's teaching them about the kingdom of God. And so uh, word has spread and there's a crowd outside as well. I, I don't imagine that it's too wild to see. And again, what I'm thinking is everybody's kind of pushing in being really quiet so they can hear what he has to say. There's no way of amplifying sound. You've got a lot of people in the house. Um, maybe everybody's sitting down and he's standing up in the middle and he, maybe he's sitting. I don't know what it looks like. But the picture here is there's a bunch of folks inside and outside this house. They're all quiet and they're trying to listen to what Jesus says. And there's this paralyzed guy. We'll call him Bob. So Bob is paralyzed and he has four friends. Um, and they pick Bob's mat up and they take him to this house. Bob's paralyzed, and they're thinking, hey, this guy, maybe he can do something about that. And so they get across town, and they get to Peter and Andrew's house, and they look, and there's a huge crowd there. And I don't know if they walked up and, you know, excuse me, can we get through? I've got a guy here. He's paralyzed. They're, if They were being, shh, be quiet. I, I don't know what that looks like. People were, for whatever reason, they couldn't get through. Most of the houses during this time would have had an outside staircase, so they, they see that. They go up the steps. They get on the roof. The roof is um, dried mud, probably like adobe with some thatch on top of it. They start moving that thatch. It, I don't know how thick the roof is. People did spend time on their roof, so it's thick enough to support the weight of several people. So they're up there. And Jesus is in the house, and he's teaching. Again, I'm thinking everybody's quiet because they're listening to him. And I don't know if they picked up rocks and sticks or if they used fingernails and elbows, but somehow they start scratching through this dried mud and I, I don't know maybe people start looking at Peter and Andrew do y'all have rats do you have like what's what's going on up here they hear all this clawing and scratching and then maybe some dust starts falling into the room then maybe chunks of roof I don't know maybe these pieces of roof are coming in I'm figuring Bob's not a big man maybe but he's probably you know, five feet tall Maybe his mat's five feet by two feet. So they're either digging a hole that's ten square feet so they can lower Bob in it horizontally, or they're digging something that's maybe you know three by three so they can kind of drop him in vertically. But either way, they're digging a pretty big hole. And I'm thinking after they get the hole dug, two of them jump in so they can catch Bob. There's four guys. I'm thinking two stay up there. How else would it work? You don't just drop a paralyzed guy on a mattress. So two guys have to get in, right? So two guys jump through the hole. I guess people get out of the way somehow. I'm thinking it's tight. Somehow they get people out of the way. They have to kick some more people outside. They jump down, and then however they drop Bob in, whether they lower him down horizontally or they kind of drop him in vertically, they get there. I'm guessing Peter and Andrew, it's their house. 
Imagine your house, somebody rips a hole in your roof and jumps in, or you're having some type of a get-together. Your small group this week, y'all are doing your thing, being holy. Somebody rips open the roof and jumps in, drops a paralyzed man right in front of you. That's the picture here for these guys. I was thinking, what in the world would possess people? Like That's a vandalism. You go to jail for, you can't rip a hole in somebody else's roof. What would possess people to do something like that? So Bob is a, he's paralyzed. Spends all of his time laying on a mat. We know he can't use his legs. It doesn't look like he can use his arms either. The fact that he's having to be carried around. So it makes me think he, no use of his arms, definitely no use of his legs. So his life is laying on a mat. Most likely begging for his food every day. Now, we do know he has four friends, so maybe they play cards or chess or checkers or something with him occasionally, but those guys have to work, so that's not, they can't spend all day, every day with him. He's not totally isolated. He at least has four friends. If he's lucky, he still gets to live with his family, because his parents, because they're still alive. Most likely, they're not alive, and so he's scrounging. He's day-to-day just trying to get what he can to put food on the table. Hopefully, somebody will drag him out of the rain if it rains, all that type of stuff. He has no hope. There's no Americans with Disabilities Act. There's no wheelchair. There are no wheelchairs, much less ramps. There's no government programs to take care of him. There's nothing. He is 100% reliant on the kindness of strangers to get. If he can't use his arms, he can't even feed himself. He needs somebody else to put the food in his mouth. So you can imagine, if you're Bob, that's your state in life. Pretty hopeless. So a few days before, it's Saturday, Jesus is in the synagogue and he drives a demon out of this guy, says the word, I think in verse 29, Mark 1, 29, it says, and word about him quickly spread throughout Galilee. So you're laying on your mat, you're Bob, and you start hearing whispers about this guy. You see people, they're heading toward Peter and Andrew's house. They're all going to see this man, Jesus, see who he is, what he can do. It says, that the, I think it's in verse uh, 32 of chapter 1. It says, at, in the evening, the whole town comes out to him. So everybody's going out there. And then towards nighttime, people start coming back. You're Bob, you're laying on your mat, and you're hearing reports. People who were sick, who are now well. Maybe it's blind people who can see. Maybe there are crippled people who can walk. We don't know. He just says, brought, he healed people with various diseases. And these people who were demonized. He delivered them and brought freedom to their lives. So all these people who went out sick and broken come back healthy and whole. And there you are, hopeless Bob, laying on your mat. And these four guys, I'm wondering, these four friends of yours, maybe one of them, two of them, whatever, they come up to you and like, Bob, this, he's the real deal. We went, we wanted to check it out. We didn't want to bring you up there and get your hopes up in case he was just a fake. But he's the real thing. We saw it with our own eyes. He was healing people. We're, going, we're bringing you there tomorrow. We are coming to get you first thing in the morning, and we are going to Peter and Andrew's house. We know he can help you. I'm thinking Bob doesn't sleep that night. He's excited. He's probably nervous. He's trying not to get his hopes up too much. But yet he's heard all these reports. His friends wouldn't lie to him. So they get up, they come early the next morning, they pick him up, they get him on his mat, and they head to 
Peter and Andrew's house, and they get there, and there's already a crowd. Peter comes out, and they say, where's Jesus? And he says, you know, I'm not sure. We're going to go try to find him. So Peter and Andrew and James and John, they go searching for Jesus, and they find him in this solitary place. And they come up to him and say, man, you've got to come back. There's a whole crowd at our house, and they are waiting for you. And Jesus says, can't do it. We're headed somewhere else. The reason I came was to preach this message in all the towns and villages. I'm not going back to your house, Peter. So then Peter's got to go back down there. And people see him coming in, and they probably see the look on his face, and it's this combination of embarrassment and disappointment and confusion. And they say, where's Jesus? Is he coming? And Peter says, no, he's not coming. What? Why not? He said... He's got to go around to all these other towns and villages and preach this message. He said he's not coming back. And we've got to go with him. So you're Bob in that setting. You didn't get out there the first night. And your friends, they come and they get you the next day and you show up. And he's gone. Think how you're feeling at that point. Did you lose your chance? Was that your one shot? And then, a few days later, we know it's a few days, we, we read through that. Bob had no idea that Jesus was ever coming back. And then you hear this report, he's back, he's back. You think his friends wasted any time going to get him? You think when they saw that crowd, they saw that as a problem at all? They were getting through. Bob's, this combination of Bob's desperation and his friend's determination got them in front of Jesus. One of the questions I have for us this morning. You feel like you've lost your shot? There's some area of your life where you feel like I had a chance and I blew it for whatever reason. Either you didn't get in front of Jesus or you said no or you just delayed. Something happened and you feel like that door is not just shut, it is permanently bolted and you're done. And you walk around with this feeling of I've blown it. That was my chance. I'm going to be blank forever. She was the one and she's gone. So I'm doomed to singleness, if you consider that doom. I had a chance for this in this this decision with my career and I chose right. And now look where I am. I should have gone left. And you feel like, yes, our choices have consequences, but if you feel like the door's been shut, he's left town, and you don't know if he's ever coming back. This morning, I hope that reading this story will reignite hope in you. I don't know about your circumstances, and I'm not making any promises. All I know is God does second chances and tenth chances and 212th chances. And he's not gone for good until he comes back again. The door's always open until he closes it. And he says he's not going to close it until he returns. So we've got time now. I don't want to give you false hope, but I also don't want you to live in some false sense of death if there is still hope. Another question I was thinking about for some of the rest of us, like as Bob's friends, do we have that type of confidence in Jesus? Is there, do you believe enough in Jesus' goodness and his grace and his kindness and his power that you'd rip a hole in somebody's roof? Not me. Are you willing to take your paralytic friend who most likely is an emotional basket case and do all this work because you think this guy's going to help him? He's going to fix it. 
or you and I, Thanksgiving is coming up. We're all going to go, many of us are going to go and spend time with our families, and for some of you, it is the best. You love it, and it's great, and it is nurturing, and for some of you, you revert back to eight-year-old you, and you, you're not who you are. Who you are now, that's not who you are when you go home. You revert back to your old behaviors and your old ways of talking and acting, and you never really talk about anything significant, and you don't tell anybody what's going on. You, you know how that is. Just kind of those relational dynamics aren't there. I wonder for you, do you have enough confidence in who Jesus is that you'd be willing in that setting just to be who you are? You don't have to be a self-righteous or holier than thou. You don't have to say the Thanksgiving Day prayer. And if you do, it doesn't have to be 25 minutes long. But are you, do you have enough confidence that Jesus is the answer, that you're willing to put that out there? That you're willing to maybe try to get your family to him in some way, or your friends to him in some way. No guilt, just a question. Thinking about the determination that Bob's friends have, it it makes me wonder, am I that sold on Jesus' ability to help people? That I'm willing to do those kind of things to get folks in front of him. Verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now first... That's not what they were looking for. They wanted healing, not forgiveness. I'm sure Bob's like, sins, I lay on a mat all day. No sinning here. Can't even use my arms. But that's what Jesus says. We don't have any indication that there was any dialogue between Jesus and anybody at this point. All we know is they rip a hole in the roof and they drop this guy and somehow he lands in front of Jesus. And the first piece of dialogue is, son, your sins are forgiven. We'll talk about that in a minute. This idea of their faith. Jesus says he looks at, he sees their faith. I think that's the friends. Bob didn't really exercise any faith. He's just laying on a mat at that point. It was the faith of his friends that Jesus saw and responded to. And we get that. We know that. Jesus responds to faith. You see that throughout the Gospels. Hebrews eleven six. without faith it's impossible to please God. But that's a hang-up for some of us. I think it's in Matthew 17, Jesus says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea, and it will. Now, I'm 100% certain that if I showed up at Kennesaw Mountain today and said, go throw yourself in Lake Alatoona, it ain't happening. It's not. So either that means I don't have the faith the size of a mustard seed, or there's something else going on there. For some of us, I think we see this whole thing, it's a vending machine. God's the vending machine. And faith is the money. And we just want to know how much money we've got to put in to push what we want, to get what we want out of it. Healing for a headache, how much faith is that? Healing for cancer, does that take more? A spouse, a job, a raise, a promotion, whatever. How much faith do I have to put into the slot to be able to push the button and get what I want from the Lord? That's, what many, that's, that's where we get hung up when it comes to asking God to get involved in our life. How much Money do I have to put in? How much change, how much faith do I have to have to get God off his tail and actually working here, involved in these situations? I think the idea of the mustard seed in the mountain. Mustard seed's the smallest thing Jesus could have held in his hand. The mountain's the biggest thing he could have pointed to behind him. I think what he's saying is it doesn't take much of this, doesn't take much faith to do really big things. And it's not because faith is so awesome, it's because God is. And he's so willing to act on our behalf. So the issue is, it doesn't do anybody any good for Kennesaw Mountain to wind up in Lake Alatoona. It's going to upset a lot of people. That doesn't bring any glory to God. 
It doesn't help anybody. It's a silly thing. And for me to get wrapped up in a metaphor is stupid. The issue for me and the issue for you is when I need God, when I need something from Him, do I have enough faith to get in front of Him? Yes or no? I don't know how much faith a mustard seed is, but I know for these guys it was rip a hole in a roof and drop your friend through it. That's how much it was. Faith is measured in action. And the only way you know you have it is when the situation arises. Will you step out or not? Will you obey or not? Will you trust or not? It doesn't do us any good in the sterility of this room to try to measure our faith. That's not the point. The point is, when I need something from Him, when I need Him to work in some situation in my life, do I have enough faith to get in front of Him or to get somebody else in front of Him? Whatever that means. And that's a question for you this morning. Not mustard seeds or mountains. It's when it comes down to it. When you're in the hospital room. When you're about to have lunch with this person who you've maybe had a falling out with. Do you have enough faith in those moments to get in front of Jesus? To take a step of obedience, a step of trust? Yes or no? Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? We get this whole Jesus is the forgiver of our sins. We talk about that all the time. It's cliche for us, radical for them. Totally not good. It was either true or it was blasphemy. They were right. So the religious leaders, their job is to keep everything on the road. They want to keep everybody pure and they want to protect us from anything that's going to pull us off track because we need God to work and he's going to work when we're pure enough. When we follow the rules well enough, that's when he's going to work. So he doesn't, we, they don't need us moving off chasing these crazy people. So if Jesus comes back and he says, the kingdom of God is near and you repent and you believe, he doesn't say anything about the law and then he's healing people and casting out demons and now he's drawn a whole crowd of people to listen to him, of course they're going to show up. Now towards the end of his ministry, they 100%, they are bums. They're wicked. At this point, they're neutral. They're just trying to do their job. Show up, let's hear what this guy has to say. And when he says, son, your sins are forgiven, all their spiritual antennas go up, and they're like, "What? who are you? And they're right. Who is he? You can't do that. In the Bible, sin sometimes is pictured as a debt. So you can imagine if every time you sin against somebody, it's like owing them money. You're running a tab. So if J.D. sins against me, it's 10 bucks. He owes me $10, and every time you sin against me, you're also sinning against God because he's the one that said don't do it. He's the one that said, you love me, and when you sin against me, you're not loving me. So it's $10 to me and $10 to God every time you sin against me. Same thing for y'all. So we, we all have these accounts. I've got who owes me and who I owe. And then Jesus steps in and says, son, your sins are forgiven. doesn't work. That would be like if, if J.D. said something to me. He punches me in the face, $10. And then Liz said to him, Honey, you don't have to pay him that. Your sins are forgiven. She can't do that. He owes me. He doesn't owe her. Who is she to tell him he doesn't have to pay me? And if all of our and if, and if sin is ultimately against God, who in the world is Jesus to say that guy's debt is paid to God? You can't. The, the religious leaders were right. Either this is something brand new or it's blasphemy. It's nowhere in between. 
Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, sorry, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. So conventional wisdom at the time is if someone has a disease, it's because God is punishing them. So this guy is a paralytic. Most folks aren't going to feel sorry for him because they figure he deserved it. He did something that, and God is now judging him for whatever he did. So it's not just that he's a paralytic, he's a sinner. And he's sinned big time because he's paralyzed. You can read John 9, Jesus kind of blows up that conventional wisdom. He doesn't teach that, but right now he takes advantage of that conventional wisdom. And he says to them, all right, so spiritual condition and physical condition are paralleling each other. He's physically paralyzed, which is a parallel of the fact that he is in bondage to his own sin. So what's easier, for me to forgive his sins or for me to heal his body? And he heals his body to validate, to prove the fact that he's forgiven him of, of his sins. If you think, religious leaders, those two things are connected, that the reason he's laying on this mat is because God has judged him, well, when he gets up off the mat, then that proves that God has forgiven him, right? That's what, he's, that's what that whole exchange is about. It's about Jesus validating the fact that he can, in fact, forgive sins, which is, again, cliche for us, radical for them. That Jesus can stand in the place of God and pronounce forgiveness for somebody. And then he gets up and goes home as evidence of the fact that Jesus was right. That Jesus wasn't just spouting things off. He actually did forgive his sins. This is Isaiah 53. It's a popular passage to read around Easter. You probably have heard it. I'm going to read, it's 12 verses. It's a little long. I'm going to read the whole thing. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. I want you to listen to all the language here that has to do with paying something off. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death, but was numbered with the transgressors. 
for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. You hear that? Jesus didn't just say your sins are forgiven. He actually paid for them. That's why he can say that. It's not that he just wipes the debt away. He paid the debt. So the $100 million or whatever it is that I owe God, he doesn't just say, oh, don't worry about it. He says, I'm going to write that check. And he does the same thing for everybody in this room and everybody you're going to eat Thanksgiving dinner with and everybody you work with and everybody you go to school with and everybody you run into in the grocery store. He's paid the debt for all of us. He doesn't just say your sins are forgiven. He's paid the debt for us all. A few things about forgiveness, and then we'll close up. We receive this forgiveness that Jesus paid through confession. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's kind of like a tax credit. That money is out there for you. All you have to do is qualify for it. You don't earn it. All you do is ask for it. If you fit, if you meet these conditions, then you get this tax credit. But you have to ask for it. That's confession. Your sins are forgiven. You just have to ask for that. You have to ask for that credit to be applied to your account. If you don't ask, it's not applied. He doesn't force forgiveness on anyone. He's forgiven. This is me. You can disagree. He's forgiven all the sins of everyone who has ever lived but only a certain number of people choose to apply for the credit. And others say, you know what, I'm just going to pay my own way. doesn't make sense to me. But that's what many people do. They choose to say, you know what, I'm going to pay for my own sin instead of allowing you to pay for it. So there's all this unused grace and unused mercy that's floating around out there that people just have chosen not to apply. And the way we apply is confess. You don't have to keep an exhaustive list of every sin you've ever committed. God doesn't, he's not an accountant, he doesn't work that way. But as he brings stuff to your mind, when you're doing something and there's a sense of conviction and you know what that feels like, when you feel guilty about it, that's the Lord saying, hey, you owe me. That was a sin, you just incurred some debt. And in that moment, just say, just confess. God, I confess. I blew it. Tell him exactly what you did, as much as you can remember. Forgive me, that's it. Forgive me, that's applying for the tax credit, and that his blood, what he did, will be applied to your account. Because we've been forgiven, we're expected to forgive. I don't have time to talk about this this morning. There's a parable of the unmerciful servant. It's in Matthew and in Luke. Go look it up. We've been forgiven a lot, $100 million. So I've got to be willing to forgive J.D. the 10 that he owes me for hitting me in the face. Because of all of the things God has forgiven me of, he expects me to forgive him for the things, relatively speaking, that are smaller, that are less significant, that that I have incurred. Because my debt has been taken care of, I need to be willing to forgive the debt of someone else. Now, forgiveness is not saying you didn't hit me, it's not saying it didn't hurt, and it's not saying I want to go to lunch with you tomorrow. Forgiveness is saying you owe me $10 and I'm not going to make you pay it. That's what forgiveness is. Healing kind of comes after that, but for right now, for some of you, the idea of forgiveness, you can't get past it. The Bible's very clear. If we're not willing to forgive others, we can't receive forgiveness from the Lord. We reap what we sow. And if what we're sowing is judgment and unforgiveness, that's what we're going to reap, and you don't want to do that. 
So again, to forgive somebody, whatever the circumstances are. It's not saying that it was okay. It's not saying it didn't happen. It's not saying it was right. It's not saying they shouldn't be punished. None of that. It's saying, I'm not going to make you pay me the money you owe me. That's it. It's forgiving the debt that they owe you. Last, Bob had to get up. He had to take his mat and go home. His identity for his however long he'd been paralyzed was there's Bob laying on a mat. When Jesus forgave him and healed him, he got a new lease on life. And Jesus said, hey, get your mat and go. I'm sure Bob's legs didn't work so well because he hadn't used them in a long time. But I, he got it and he left. And over time, he was strengthening all those kind of things. It would have been silly for Bob to keep laying on the mat eight hours a day begging for food. It's not who he was anymore. He's a new man. He needs to go out and live this life that God created for him to live. For some of us, we hear this, you're forgiven. We hear this, you're chosen, you're adopted. You're holy, you're right. We hear that. We still live like the old us. We're still laying on a mat. For some of us, we say, well, you know what? What I did was so bad, Jesus only paid part of it. I owed ten bucks and he paid eight, so I've got to work off the other two. We spend the rest of our life trying to work off this debt that we've incurred. You don't mean this, but it's an insult to God. It's saying to Jesus, it wasn't quite enough for me. What I did, I'm so rotten that your blood doesn't quite make me clean. It makes me cleaner, but not quite clean. And so we start scrubbing. with what You don't have to do that anymore. For some of us, we've been forgiven. We're healed. We can get up and walk. And we keep limping along. You don't have to limp along. You don't have to let your past define your future for you. Everything changed for Bob with one, two, three, four, five words. Son, your sins are forgiven. And the same thing is true for us. Everything can change with one word from Jesus. Let's pray.